episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with John Goldstein, the head of the Sustainable Finance Group at Goldman Sachs. John will discuss how Goldman Sachs incorporates inclusive growth and climate transition into its investment strategy and how that approach is yielding higher returns. Welcome to the ESG Beat, John. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be a bit like the past, present, and future of the ESG story. So let's start with the past and in particular with your journey. Um, You've referred in the past to yourself as the Forrest Gump of impact (laughs) investing. Um, say more. Yeah, so so you know it's pretty remarkable, and I, I like that flow of getting to talk about the past, present, and future because that trajectory of from where we've come to where we are, and thinking about what that means for the future for me is just remarkable. Because I, I, you know, I, I like to say sort of I accidentally co-founded Imprint Capital back in 2007. Right, I was living out here in the West Coast, I, unsuccessfully trying to take time off, um, and in the same week. Uh, in early '07, the Kellogg Foundation, Google.org, and a large family office all said, "Can we, can we get your help on figuring this out?" And and I, I turned to the person at that point who knew the most about it of anyone I knew, Taylor Jordan. At the time he was chief investment officer of RSF Social Finance, and he kind of quietly and methodically built a hundred percent mission aligned investment portfolio across asset classes, across products, across in 2007. And he, in 2007, and we were starting even before then, right? He probably started doing that, call it 04, 05. And most importantly, he did it in a way that looked suspiciously like investing, <laughs> right? Which is this, I mean, even today, right, as I'm sure you're going through in these materials, there are skeptics, there are questions, there are concern, there's jargon. And, and, and Taylor was the most marvelous antidote to all that, right? He, you know, he was not someone, you know, metaphorically or literally wearing Birkenstocks trying to learn Excel. He was, you know, <laughs> a, a chief investment officer using the same tools, the same analytics, just looking at some different investments. And so after walking through that process and, you know, and, and demystifying some of this for the third time in the span of about a week, he said, why don't we just do this together? And back in 07, we didn't know that we were even really starting a business. We knew we had some really interesting work to do for some interesting people. And, and, and the thing that brought us together is we were excited at the chance to do the work, but we were slightly obsessive about trying to do it well, right? Which is, you know, I, I think this is a field where it's very asymmetric. If things uh, go badly, the cautionary tales uh, linger in the memory for quite some time. Uh, and successes can be fleeting and quickly questioned. And so for us, the stakes of execution were very real um, because uh, you know, partially there was that question of, does this work? Is there a there there? Because if there was, there might be legs and if there weren't, there wouldn't be. And what we really wanted to avoid at all costs um, was really two things. In a more technical way, we wanted to avoid a false negative, right? We wanted to avoid a failure where we didn't know whether that was because this discipline didn't work or we just didn't do it very well, right? And so there's a premium on execution. Um, and, and, and I think that, that, that is really what brought us together and built a team and any spare dollar we had, you know, we invested in the investment team, right? Building a team really focused on doing this initially with large US foundations. So we ended up working with 11 of the 25 largest US foundations. And I think that, that that had a little bit of the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger element. So these are very smart, very sophisticated institutions, right? They're sophisticated institutional investors and they also are tremendously sophisticated about impact, right? That's their core business 
they have hundreds of millions of dollars a year away in areas like climate, in areas like education, areas like health. And so they, they, they sort of demand you to know a lot about investing and a lot about the discipline. It forced us to really build out a research function. Now, the deal was if they were going to demand a lot from us, we were going to demand a little bit from them too. So we wanted to use their expertise, their knowledge, their brand, their Rolodex. And so this idea of instead of reacting to things that came along, um, doing deep research in core impact themes, developing our core views, and using that as a base for investing really emerged from working with those, those initial clients. But once again, no idea where we were going, no idea where we were building a business, just we were following the thread, right? Initially, had some great clients. Then you realized, man, we got to do this research, right? So we need more clients, more of these foundations that have expertise and capacity to partner to help us to go deep. And then other people started knocking on our door saying, wait, we, we're interested in this too. Um, and so family offices, others, and then financial institutions started to hire. Uh-huh. And what year was that? Clients when, were, when did the financial? That was, that, was, that was, they probably started calling, call it 2012, 2013. We probably got our first financial institution client right around then. And they ranged from independent RIAs, registered investment advisors, to kind of large bulls bracket banks and all points in between. Um, because they were getting these questions from their clients. They looked around and said, you know, we've got lots of capable people, but they don't necessarily have the depth in this. So we'd love some help. And then, you know, along the way, uh, you know, once again, didn't really know what we were building, but, you know, started to, to see that there was clearly something there to do. And so worked to kind of grow and professionalize the organization. We brought in a, a CEO to run the business. I really ran the client side. Taylor was our chief investment officer, built a great team. Um, and, uh, and, and then one of those financial institutions um, came back and said, instead of signing our contract, they said, well, we have this wacky idea and curious as to what you might think about it, but what if we were to buy you? And that was my like morning coffee spit take moment. Um, <laughs> and I was down. Actually, I'm, I'm upstairs sheltering in place right now. So I was downstairs, you know, having my first cup of coffee around the kitchen table. And, and this was Goldman Sachs or Hugh Lawson, who um, I got to know. Actually, he's chair of the investment committee at the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And so it gotten us to, to gotten to know us in that capacity. And 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 in the moment, I, you know, beyond trying not to spit on my coffee, I, I sort of took half a beat. But I, I said, I'd love to hear more about your thinking. And he said, it's not that complicated. This is now important, which means we need to be excellent at it. And we're good. We have lots of different you know, bits and pieces that are strong, but we're not going to get from good to excellent just by hiring a couple of people or telling the existing team to work harder. Right? We need a critical mass of people with the experience, the depth, and the focus to do this as their day job. Because number one, that lets us do the job properly. Number two, it engages all the other resources of the firm. And so I, I, I won't, you know, Harvard Business School actually wrote a nice case study about the acquisition. So people can, can, can go look, look in greater depth there um, at that, 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 that journey, which, you know, let's just say when you're running, you know, a, an impact investing firm and living in North Berkeley, California, being acquired by Goldman Sachs was not necessarily what you put on your vision board. Because, of course, here in Berkeley, we have vision boards and things like that. Um, but the more we thought about it, the more we realized if we took our mission seriously, which was move more capital impactfully, do a better job of it. Once again, to that earlier point, let's create proof points and not cautionary tales. And let's find ways to make it accessible and useful to more people. If we took that seriously, we couldn't actually think of a better way to do that than by joining Goldman Sachs. So that was, that was 2015. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I mean, it's been interesting what's happened since then, right? So when Imprint had about $550 million in assets, the combined business, um, back in 2015, had about $3 billion in kind of dedicated ESG impact assets. So a couple of things have happened since then that are, you know, assigned partially of us, but really of the world and how this has unfolded. 
to your point about kind of past, uh-huh. present, future. Um, those assets grew from you know three billion to six billion to eleven billion to seventeen, and now it's north of seventy billion. That's amazing, right? Um, second of all, and I, we just had a wonderful meeting of, of the the investment management sort of sustainable solutions council this meeting, which had the CIOs of all the different product teams together updating each other both individually and collectively on all of the efforts and how this is integrated into the data, the systems, the research. So it's not just those $70 billion of assets, it's how this is woven in to really any of the investment products, right? And I think this is one of the important things that's often not understood about this field and the language gets really confusing. But in essence, you know, ESG, environmental social governance says, our world is changing. There are new things, and it's not really about E versus S versus G. People say, do you break it down? Is it E, is it S, is it G, what's right. where? We say it's not really about that. It's about how does this translate into economic or financial value? And the question we ask is not which acronym it is. It's what does it do? Is this about identifying and managing risk, particularly tail risk? Is it about finding growth opportunities, which is generally about revenues? Or is it about driving efficiency and resilience, which is really about margins? Right? What's the economic transmission mechanism? Um, and how do we look at these factors in the world that's changing? And the way we think about it broadly are these two mega themes of climate transition and inclusive growth. How does that become another tool as part of any investor toolkit? So in that capacity, ESG is not for ESG-oriented clients. It's for any client who cares about risk-adjusted returns, which is really any client. Right? That said, some clients have more specific interests, priorities, or investment beliefs, and so want to go above and beyond that, right? So think, you know, some of the low-carbon indexing we've done for some public pension funds. You know, think about work we've done um, building out portfolios of private impact investments for corporate pension funds, right? So some people want to go above and beyond that. I think that duality of understanding, how do you get better at your day job of managing risk and return using new sources of data, new sources of insight, and how do you keep rolling with almost an, a research and development agenda to stay on the front foot to learn, to, to grow, to develop. So, so those sort of you know, four years within the investment management division, it was just really remarkable to see as the market grew, all the expertise within that division being harnessed. Because I think this is the thing that people don't understand. To make this work, you know, it's not a small set of people. It's really leveraging all the intelligence and capacity of so many different people, right? And, and, and I think seeing that unfold. But then kind of this next leg um, and, and sort of my current role, you know, is a reflection of this continued kind of acceleration as the world sort of continues to move, you know, starting probably call it late 2018, you know, there was this recognition that yes, this is really important in the investment management division, but by the way, this is important to all our divisions. This is showing up for all of our clients increasingly. And what do we do? What do we do about it? And I think we spent about six months trying to sort of think through different options of, Number one, understand like what is going on in the world? Like what, what are we seeing? Is this the preference of young investors or is this something deeper, right? Is this something more fundamental? Um, and then based on whatever our diagnosis is, what do we do? What's our action? And I think the conclusion we came to is we really saw these two core secular themes that had built and were going to continue to accelerate going forward in a way that would shape companies, markets, economies, and in turn our firm of climate transition inclusive growth, right? We had a strong research base. We had nine underlying growth themes that actually originally, remember when I talked about that deep sector scanning that Imprint Capital did, um, that's actually where the nine core growth themes came from that now really animate the, the, the work we do broadly as, as a firm because 
we looked at all the other nomenclature, all the acronyms, all the frameworks. And ultimately we said, look, who are we and what do we do? You know, we are investors who sit at the center of markets, right? We, 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 we trade, we manage capital, we advise companies. And as such, we're researchers, right? We're data and research geeks, right? We analyze markets, we analyze capital flows, economic flows, market developments. That's, our, that's what we can bring to this conversation. There's so many pieces of it, so many things people have done, but that's what we can bring. And as analysts looking at these markets, you know, to say like we ultimately see these core secular themes, the sort of research underlying the nine growth themes, that clicked, that connected with people. It could leverage all the other expertise throughout the firm. I mean, it was remarkable, a client the other day asked us to sort of post-COVID summarize all of our thinking around what it meant for climate transition and to be able to tap into investment banking, investment research, and all this different expertise has just been, been great. But I think you have to have a core thesis to be able to mobilize that. And so that led to the launch of the Sustainable Finance Group, which is what I do now. Okay, so as you know, uh, there are a lot of definitional challenges in this area. So how do you define sustainable finance or ESG at Goldman Sachs? Yeah, so the, the alphabet soup has been at best confusing and at worst challenging for this entire discipline. Um, and, and I think, you know, beyond the confusion, one of the bigger issues is it leads people to think I have to go learn a new language. This is a foreign language and it's very daunting and it almost triggers people to think, wait, so I have an existing language to talk about investing. If you have a new language, does this mean this is not investing? Right. And so what we try to do is kind of break these things down to the essence of just what are they? Yes. Kind of relatively common sense terms and why do they matter? And so we break these, you know, it's kind of the broad tend of ESG into kind of three broad elements, um, alignment, integration, and impact. So alignment says there's some investors in the world that have certain tastes, preferences, or requirements, right? As far back as the 17th century, Quakers, you know, had prohibitions against owning and investing in munitions, right? You have a whole host of issues, and it could be around uh, energy transition. It could be around tobacco, you know, healthcare clients not wanting to invest, you know, a whole host of those kinds of issues. And so that tends to be people having very specific preferences, often about things that they don't want to own. Right? And so as an investor, the question is, how do I deliver on my client's financial objective while understanding what alignment looks like to them? And the amazing thing about alignment is that so many confuse sustainable investing with solely being about alignment. Absolutely. The number of times I'll walk in and we'll start talking about this and say, wait, you're just going to tell me the things I can't own or how, how is that adding value to me? It's like, let's slow down, right? This is generally based on people who have specific preferences, you understand them, and then you implement in a risk-managed, thoughtful way, right? You know, as with any financial technology, building a line portfolio has gotten a lot better, right? You know, I, I think, you know, now we have, this morning I was hearing an update on an engine where people can put in their preferences on that in a highly dynamic way, and an optimizer will tell them what the tracking error costs relative to a conventional index is, and they can toggle levels and decide what they want, right? So the, the technology to implement alignment in a financially smart, low-cost, scalable way, often this works in passive investing. How do I get the benefits of passive, low-cost, scale, and market efficiency, but in a values-aligned way, right? How do I preserve those benefits? I want it to be scalable. I want it to be efficient, effective ways to capture market exposure, but there's some stuff I don't want to have, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that technology. That's what alignment is, and that tends to be very client-driven. Right. Sure. ESG integration in some ways is the opposite. ESG integration is not for people who care about ESG. 
ESG is for people who care about risk-adjusted returns, right? And so I think in that capacity, just as our world is changing, right? Look at, look at you know, energy transition, climate transition. Look at, you know, amidst COVID, people talking about how we think about, you know, dealing with workforce, communities, other issues, diversity, all of these things that matter, that have economic impacts. And all ESG says is, as you would with anything else that can drive risk and return, give you incremental insight or be an incremental blindside, be good at it, be smart, be intelligent, be informed and be effective. And I think you know, what we try to do is map it not to the acronym, but to the economic levers about managing risk, is about finding growth and opportunity or driving efficiency, i.e. is it about losses and drawdowns? Is it about growth in the top line or is it about margins, right? And I think that's what ESG, and, and it looks different in different investment strategies, different time horizons, different asset classes. It's not one size fits all. And with different investment styles, quants will do that differently than fundamental investors, right? Just concentrate portfolios. To, you know, so it plays out differently, but with the same basic idea. And once again, it's not for clients who care about ESG. It's for clients who care about making money on a risk-adjusted basis. The hard thing is not whether you do ESG. It's as with anything investing is how do we do it well, right? Impact, you know, I, I think there are a few pieces of that, but at the, it's hard saying increasingly we're finding new ways to use business and enterprise to try to solve social environmental problems. And that's the core of a business or a project. And increasingly what we're seeing is number one, some of those actually the flip side of a massive social challenge or unmet need is a massive growth market, right? And so some entrepreneurs are creating high growth, powerful, profitable enterprises, and that can translate into profitable investments. So there's a piece of this, which just says these are attractive growth themes to invest in leave the impact phrase out of it, right? You could not care about impact and you would still invest in these things because they make money. This is where growth is, investors want growth. Some investors want something a little more specific, right? The idea is I care about a specific issue, a specific community, and the economics of investing capital in that don't generate competitive returns. And it may be because just it doesn't pencil, right? It's a very, you know, a low-income community, doesn't have a lot of purchasing power. It could be because it's not at scale yet, right? There are lots of reasons for that and lots of dynamics. But I think it's important to acknowledge, people often ask, is there a trade-off you know, in terms of, of, of investing and impact? And the answer is, as with so many things, investing, it depends. Right. right. It depends on what you're trying to do. Are you finding an area that has emerged from the nascent phase and been de-risked, but is not so emerged to be crowded, right? If you can find stuff at the right stage um, and you execute well, you can generate, in our experience, attractive returns. Um, number one, not everyone does that well, as with any investing, right? Private markets investing pretty is high dispersion, right? The gap between really good investors and really not as great investors is wide, right? And so skill and ex quality of execution matters a lot. And number two, some people do have different objectives. Some people say, I want to invest in deeply affordable housing in this community, right? There are some things that just can't generate those returns. But I think those three different disciplines get conflated all the time. And I think to your point earlier, you know, you'll start talking about ESG and still say, ah, don't tell me what I can and cannot buy. Or on the other side, are you going to tell me I have to invest in a small village level water purification system in West Africa? It's like, you know, just that's not what we're talking about. So level setting on language has been, 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 been important. Right. And I, I, um, really like these three pillars, alignment, ESG integration, and impact investing, because they are often conflated, but they're, they're so different and for, they're for different types of, of investors. At the same time, what I've been impressed with um, as I've learned more about 
uh, Goldman Sachs's approach and your approach is really how you govern the ESG function at Goldman Sachs. And as somebody who looks very closely at corporate governance and tries to, you know, look at that as evidence of whether there's authentic commitment, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about just how integrated uh, this um, sustainable investing lens is at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think one of the things that's been fascinating is seeing theory turn into practice over this last year since the launch of the Sustainable Finance Group, right? So, you know, it was launched really out of the recognition that inclusive growth and climate transition were going to be increasingly fundamental, important factors in the economy for our clients and for our firm. And thus, we needed to deepen our expertise, broaden and extend our capabilities, and actually be able to deliver those to clients in the marketplace. And that was really our job. So it was a recognition of the need for that and a resourcing of, of, of that objective. But, but when it come, when the rubber meets the road, what, what, what drives success there, right? So I think a couple things is number one, um, leadership has made a huge difference. I think the clarity, the direction and the involvement of our senior most leaders, including our board and our C-suite. You know, I also, you know, I have a steering group of 24 senior partners around the firm who are the people who really run the different businesses. Um, and the engagement and the investment that they have is critical. Um, that would have been harder without that clear grounding in a financial thesis that made sense. But if you've got grounding in a thesis that makes sense, if you've got the top-down support, um, which has been remarkable and consistent for me, it's just been amazing. See, even just in the last few days, right? You know, last week our, our CEO you know, interviewed the UN Secretary General to talk about our commitment of $750 billion towards sustainable finance and investing in advisory and financing. Um, the other day, I talked to the CEO of BP about energy transition and why they're committed to accelerating their energy transition plan. And just this involvement and engagement at all, at, at, from the top makes a real difference. But then, as with so many things, it comes down to execution, right? You can have all the grounding and all the support you want, but it comes down to execution. And so, you know, this morning I, I got up at the delightful hour of 4.30 a.m. Um, for the, a meeting of the, our investment manager, you know, of, of the GSAM, Sustainable Solutions Council. So that had the CIOs of all the different investing functions, the head relationship, it had really all the senior team there going over updates on the key work streams in terms of research and data as it's integrated into the portfolio management systems across the investors, right? Um, and seeing the mobilization of senior leadership, the organization around accountability for specific streams of work. You know, we did the same thing, you know, the other day with our Investment Bank Sustainable Solution Council, did the same thing yesterday with our Global Markets Council. And so this idea of a hub and spoke model, because this wouldn't get much of anywhere if it's just 10 of us sitting under the executive office trying to make it happen. What makes it happen is, you know, armed with the support we have, but to really partner with the leaders of the businesses to methodically build it out within the business. And that's the part that's relatively invisible, but really, really matters is having senior leaders, you know, in the different divisions, build out that infrastructure that we work with both one-on-one, -on -one, but also collectively. Because the other thing that's so powerful is, you know, our individual divisions are great. We try to do a really good job. But when you can put all those things together, it's really interesting. And I think this has been getting that model of there's a lot of nuance to getting the structure right, which is if you just have one place where this sits, you're going you're gonna to miss out on so much. Um, on the other hand, if you have it totally distributed, 
it's fragmented, right? And so getting that balance right, um, I think we learned a lot building that out within the asset management division, right? Having, we call it the both and approach. Because people say, do you have a dedicated team or do you integrate it? And our answer was, was yes, right? <laughs> and, I, and, and, I, and I think we're, we found the same thing applying uh, across the firm has been so, so important. And then the other thing you get is, you know, you get an awful lot of smart professionals who, who own it, who add to it, who draw from it, and that just builds on itself. That makes a lot of sense. So let's go to the relatively recent past. In December of 2019, Goldman Sachs made an incredible announcement that it would invest $750 billion in ESG funds. Um, can you describe the pillars of that commitment to us? What does that mean? Yeah, I just, you know, it was so exciting, you know, to, to see our, our CEO come out. And I think he laid it out in an op-ed in the Financial Times. And I think there are a couple of components to the announcement, right? So one, and the one that probably got the most attention, was $750 billion of investing advisory and financing uh, towards sustainable finance. I think two things that got a little less focus underneath it, but I think are very important, is additionally to work to integrate these capabilities, these skills across our products and our businesses. Um, and then additionally, you know, laying out what was under the hood of that, right? This was not arbitrarily chosen, not chosen, frankly, because someone else told us to do it. It was the result of our putting our heads together with our best thinking and our best research, both past and actually looking to the future. And so broadly, it fits in these two buckets of inclusive growth and climate transition. And it was interesting at the time when we did it, walking through it, you know, with a lot of our senior leaders, it made sense. It was grounded and we were going forward. But a few made the comment that, well, you know, I assume a lot more of the activity is going to be around the climate theme. It's been fascinating, you know, now as we sit here having uh, underwritten $25 billion of COVID relief bonds um, and with conversations about sort of, well, some people say we're, we're saying that the, the, the S, you know, the E has taken a backseat to the S. My, my line is S has climbed to the front seat of the E. Um, but, but I think, you know, having those two pillars was important. But underneath that are these nine growth themes that really had a foundation in the, the core scanning work of imprint capital and then, you know, got refined with all the expertise around the firm to really hone in on these nine themes. So under climate transition, we have clean energy, waste and materials, sustainable food and agriculture, sustainable transportation, and ecosystem services. And then under inclusive growth, we have education, healthcare, financial inclusion, and communities, right? And so each of those in some ways have core KPIs, core elements of their business model. What, what problem are they trying to solve? What are they trying to deliver? How is their success measured? But I think that's really what under, underpins this. And I think the two broad pillars are an easy way to, to coalesce that. But so much of it's getting to the next level of, of, of where does the research go? What, is it, what does it have us, have us do? You've also talked about the $750 billion being the result of this very thoughtful process. It's not a goal that you've set arbitrarily that you're working towards, but rather a result of where the market is already headed. And the stakeholders that were sort of driving that result and that large commitment were consumers, employees, policymakers, asset owners, and companies. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the why? Why? was this coming from so many different stakeholders? And this, this was a really critical part of the conversation internally um, with our leadership as we really formed this. Because on the one hand, everyone saw something was growing, right? They saw a hockey stick of growth, of appetite, of transactional activity, of client interest. But 
without understanding what's driving it, it's hard to know, is this a fad? Will it persist? Is it real? Is it not? You need to get under the hood of, of not just that it's growing, but why. And I think when we stepped back, you know, we really looked at, at, a, at a couple basic things. I think one, you know, we talked about demand, um, two, talk about economics, and three is sort of sort of the visibility of the consequences of lack of progress. I think actually some of our leaders have distilled it down much more recently into, into you know, it's both sort of an imperative and an opportunity. Right, and looking at that. But in terms of the drivers and the demands, I think what we broke it down to is often this is caricatured as you know a luxury good wanted by young millennial investors. And I like to quote you know quip that you know somebody in a survey said 128 percent of millennials want to invest in ESG funds. Um, whether that whether that's true or not, uh, arguably it's marginal in terms of importance as a real underlying driver. The real drivers are number one, you know, consumer tastes have changed in terms of what they want to buy and the types of companies they want to buy it from, right? You know, by various counts, sort of 90% plus of the top 100 consumer packaged good brands have lost market share um, in the last four years due to changing consumer tastes, right? Consumer tastes are changing significantly. That's not an academic issue. That drives market share, it drives growth, it drives losses, it has economic consequences. Two, one of the least talked about things are employees, right? Which is, I was talking to the CFO of a company who said, I have one ESG issue and it's my workforce. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, I have talent workers who, you know, honestly, the unemployment rate amongst my target workforce is close to zero. They have lots of choices and they're not going to choose to work for me unless I show them what we do has meaning and we do it in a thoughtful fashion. And you see this, you see employees getting engaged relative to their own employer on a whole host of these issues. Um, and the, you know, competing for talent, particularly in some areas, is, 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 is a fierce competition. And this is a particularly important way to attract and retain that, that talent. I think you see investors getting in the game in a fundamentally different way, asset owners engaging uh, with companies and whether it's with shareholder resolutions or direct uh, engagement with management. Regulators, I mean, you see a very ambitious EU sustainable finance taxonomy emerging uh, in Europe. You know, Korea, South Korea is talking about a Green New Deal as part of recovery. You know, we just saw some headlines yesterday about, you know, what the European Union wants to do uh, in terms of accelerating electric vehicles out of, out of some of the recovery packages. And so governments are getting really highly in, involved as well. And so these drivers, they're not academic. They have impacts in the real economy and in markets in a way that gives this a persistence that's likely to, to, to extend into the decades ahead. So we can't ignore, of course, that we're recording this in the midst of a global pandemic hoping that our children won't interrupt <laughs> the interview. <laughs> and you've recently said something that I really, um, really resonated with me, which is that the virus has unexpectedly turned out to be a stress test for a field that was ready for it. What do you mean by that? So, you know, somebody back in call it, you know, November, December, they said, yeah, yeah, I see all this growth. But to be honest, I'm a little worried. It feels like we're at that, 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 point that dangerous point in a hype cycle right where where people now feel obligated to do it and don't even quite know what it is or why they just know they're supposed to do it and 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 things get dangerous from there right you lose a real grounding you lose a real footing you get froth uh, and froth is dangerous in markets um, and 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 I think the other thing that had always been a, a subtle or not so subtle knock on the field is is this sort of a luxury good fueled by bull markets and affluence you know, can this, can this discipline take a punch? And, and I think that, that all that, that hangover of skepticism uh, and, and the concerns about the froth, I think meant that, and, and 
heavens knows this is not the form anyone wanted this to take, right? Um, and, 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 and what so many people are going through, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's even hard for us to truly grasp in terms of, you know, the health consequences, societal and economic. Um, but amongst so many things that got their stress tests, ESG sure got one, right? And, and I think, you know, what has been interesting is to step back and see how did it, how did it do? And, and I think we really looked at three things, financial performance, flows, and engagement. Uh, and I think in terms of financial performance, this is increasingly well documented, but I think, you know, Morningstar had a great study, you know, 44% of ESG funds were in the top quartile versus 11% in the bottom quartile. Of, of note, the biggest driver of that was security selection. It wasn't an energy underweight. I mean, our own data in terms of kind of a high ESG, low ESG basket outperformed by 16% in Q1. What do you attribute that to? Um, so this is, attribution is key. We try to pull these things apart to sort of understand why. And a lot of it is coming down to security selection. It's not just your, you know, your underweight energy or your overweight technology, or you have a large cap bias. I think increasingly it does seem like when, when implemented thoughtfully, um, ESG gives some incremental insight. And maybe that has to do with governance and management. Right? Maybe companies that manage those factors well are going to be more broadly resilient uh, and able to navigate crises. You know, and I think this is part of what we're, everyone's trying to understand. And this is also one of the reasons why we don't come out and saying, aha, you know, ESG is capable of magic death-defying you know, performance. <laughs> it is alpha pixie dust. I think for us, that's not the point. Right? The point is the data are quite inconsistent with the hypothesis that the field would just wither in a downturn just hasn't happened. And I think there'll be increasing bodies of data to try to understand why, what do we take from that? What do we learn going forward? Um, second thing is capital flows, you know, which is we had, you know, record capital flows into ESG funds in Q1. The second most inflows into any equity ETF on the planet was into one BlackRock ESG ETF in the second week uh, of April for that, for that week. Um, I, you know, I just similarly, you know, I was looking at some data in Europe um, and I think for Q1, there were 30 million euros of inflows into ESG funds in Q1 versus 148 billion euros of outflows to non-ESG funds in Q1. Wow. And so, you know, in terms of flows, that, you know, check. So check on performance, check on flows. And then just in terms of engagement. I mean, actually, Emily Chase and Bloomberg did a really nice update of a chart. So she, she had a chart at the end of last year that showed ESG media focus and attention going, you know, sort of going almost vertical. Um, and then she updated it. And what it shows is very consistent with what we've seen with our clients is, you know, that high growth towards the end of the year. And then this moment of shock when things dipped and it was all hands on deck and people just trying to kind of keep, keep, keep afloat and navigate the day to day. And then the growth theme has kind of just gotten right back, uh, picked up right where it left off. And I think that's been our experience in terms of talking to clients. You know, I, I'm thinking about, you know, my, uh, my, my, my days, you know, we did a, you know, we had a client call with a thousand people the other day. On this, um, you know, one of my one of my colleagues, uh, you know, daily check-ins on ESG. That just looking at even the viewership of this, the appetite, the interest, and engagement on sort of every level um, has really picked back up. I think what's faded away, and I think in a good way, is the dabblers. We're not having a lot of one-on-one conversations right now, right? This is people who see the significance of this and want to navigate successfully for the future. This is not people who say, "Can you explain this to me?" This is people who are like, "Okay, what do I do next?" Um, and, and for us, that's great because it's very action oriented. We can be helpful. We both, you know, we can be helpful and we can also continue to learn 
because that's a huge part of our work is you know to try to constantly be learning as well as as, as well hopefully sharing and helping um but I, I think that's that that in terms of the engagement i think you know we really have seen it pick back up so that stress test i think it needed it i think it fared well and i think that puts a stronger foundation under it going forward right because that lingering question um you know and the questions are never fully put to rest but i i, I think it, it's it's it, it gives some you know a little bit of context around the, that that conversation on a going forward basis so we talked about uh magic pixie dust um and my last question is uh your magic wand so if if you could wave your magic wand and direct um policymakers or the SEC or issuers uh, to make changes, um, you know, and you can just give me your top three or um, just address the changes to one of these constituencies, what would you do? So I, I, three things stand out to me. So one is continue to ground this as an investment question, not an ideological or philosophical one. Um, and And I think a lot of people have have gotten past that point, but not everyone has yet, right? You know, they 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 think you're asking them to kind of sign up for an ESG lifestyle, right? It's like no, we're just asking you to look at data and try to manage your portfolio well. And and, and I think the more disconnect, I, I like to say I, I I aspire to getting to kind of a post acronym world, right? It's not about ESG. It's just about more data, more insights, more ways to make money, and and people having their own thesis on it. Right? Ours is around sustainable finance and these two pillars and the changing world. I talked to the CEO of another asset manager who said it's just about pattern recognition. Right? They said ultimately their view is there's no unique data in the world anywhere. What's unique is your ability to recognize patterns emerging before other people with a higher rate of success and a little more quickness. Um, and and, and the, he said the way he educated his portfolio managers, and he'd struggled with this for a while, but he said, you know what, actually, when I explain it, if I call it ESG, people look at me blankly or maybe roll their eyes. But if I go through actual examples and I say, look, this is, we're all about pattern recognition. And this is another tool that aids pattern recognition. And it's orthogonal to other tools and thus additive. They nod and it makes sense, right? So you're getting past the sort of philosophical language to investing language and, you know, our post-acronym world. So I wish for a post-acronym world grounded in investment theses, number one. Number two, and this is related. Um, I, I, the fork in the road between what I call checklist washing and investing, you know, it's still a real thing, right? Solving for the label versus solving for the reality. The reality of integrating a new diverse set of inputs into a holistic investment process thoughtfully and well in a way that evolves and iterates and constantly improves over time, you can't put that on the back of a postage stamp. Right, there's nuance, there's depth, there's complexity. And I think there's a challenge. And I, 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 where this comes up is when I talk to asset managers and they complain about how they're evaluated by allocators. They say, I try to explain the nuance and depth of what I do because if it's supposed to be integrated, it's supposed to be integrated, right? Um, and, and they're still relying on more simplistic box checking approaches. And so I, I think this, this escaping the gravitational pull of checklist washing because at the end of the day, for distributed systems of people, it's a lot easier to kind of solve for the to train to teach to the test, right? Solve for the label than the messy reality of building great investment processes and discerning greatness. 
those are hard, but that's what we all need to do, right? And so the second wish is that you know people uh, escape the tractor beam of checklist washing and uh, and 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 dive into the messy but important complexity of doing this well. The third thing is that we collectively get out of our data adolescence. Right now, the state of, of data are frustrating for everybody. Companies feel like they're asked for too many different things by too many different people. I talked to the CFO of a company in the other day and she, she, she told me she added up, she'd been asked for 2000 different ESG data points in the last 12 months. Oh my gosh. Um, large asset owners are just trying to understand the, the risks and what's embedded in large complex portfolios and asset managers sort of feel stuck in between the two. And so we have this a situation where we've got a lot of noise and not necessarily a lot of signal. And everyone in that ecosystem would be better off if we had companies report better data on fewer things that matter more, right? But we're at this, well, like I said, we're in this adolescence. It's awkward, it's gangly, <laughs> it falls down all the time, it has acne, right? It's sort of, we're in the data adolescence. And I think one of our aspirations is how do we get through that awkward gangly phase to where we know we want to end up? Better reported data on the things that matter. Um, and how do we take what otherwise could be a long and painful process and accelerate it? Because ultimately, that would be good for companies, it would be good for investors, it would be good for markets, right? And so how, how do we get to that point? Because I, you know, on this client call we did, you know, Catherine Collins from Putnam said, look, we could literally drown under the paperwork, right? And that's not good for anybody, you know? And so how do we get through the data adolescence? So those would be, and I don't know on the crystal ball if I would say that's my crystal ball or if that's me looking at my crystal ball and predicting or if that's me waving my wand and hoping to achieve that future. So is that prognostication or aspiration? You know, I think we'll leave that to, to, to you and everyone else to decide. Well, I look forward to uh, watching um, ESG evolve and uh, grow up. Um, and I think that, that it is uh, facing a growth spurt. Um, <laughs> Very well put. So thank you so much, uh, John. This was wonderful. And um, we're so grateful for your time and insights. No, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for doing this and excited to, to, excited to continue to, to, to partner with Cal and all the great work you guys do in this area. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.